In today's story, a man who lost all of his fingers and some of his toes in a hiking accident tells how this experience changed his life forever. Stay tuned. Welcome to Stories of Hope. I'm Christine Hotchkiss. Each week I bring you stories that inspire, educate, and give you hope. I want to thank my sponsor and podcast producer, The Motivated Mind Group. It only takes a moment for your life to change forever. After tragedy strikes, it can sometimes take years to recover and move forward, but it can be done, even against all odds. My guest today is Matt Miller, who lost his fingers and toes after a hiking accident that nearly claimed his and his father's life. Welcome to Stories of Hope, Matt. Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me. It's yes, good to be here. Yes. In 2019, when I started this journey, it was a Zoom call, so I actually get to meet you in person. So That's thank right. you for taking me up on coming back. Thanks for having me. Well, your story is one that I haven't forgotten either, and I want everyone else to have some hope out of your story. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yours as well, and I think we'll talk about it today, but one of like the gifts is I get to hear a lot of people's stories because of my hands, you know? Absolutely, which is what we're going to talk about. So your story actually started in 2000, actually prior to 2002, your life changed and your father's changed in 2002. And your story is about survival, recovery, and struggles. You want to take us back to 2002 where you were? Yeah, I grew up, um, I grew up that, that kid who, who had really just the, the perfect childhood. I had a great family. I went to Brophy, which is the kind of the all boys Catholic school here, the prototypical. So I was that kid and I played, uh, I was our point guard, our running back and uh, our shortstop. So I played all three sports and uh, my nickname was Sports Miller. So in a, in a way, ironically, I was kind of defined by my fingers in so many ways. And I ended up going to, uh, I played baseball in college at Santa Clara University and when I got done playing, which was 2001, I moved back here, and that's where this mountain climbing expedition occurred. So my father had gotten into climbing while I was away at school, and uh, when I moved back, asked if I wanted to go on this adventure with him. And at the time, I was questioning already. My, I'd been in my career for six months, and I was already questioning what the heck I was doing there. Was your career in sports or something else? Finance, I'm sorry. Yeah, so okay. I came back here. I was actually working for my father's investment firm. And... Um, so where was I? He asked me if I want to go on this climb. I said, sure. Like, what a great way to get away. And, and growing up, we, we'd go to Alaska uh, every summer. We had many trips where we should have died probably way before, <laughs> you know, way before all this. And, those, are, uh, those are some kinds of adventures if you're talking about probably dying. Yeah, they're not, they're not terribly harrowing. But, okay. you know, like we did a 13-mile float down the Connecticut River in Alaska where we floated, our, you know, blew our raft up and didn't see a human for 10 day, or 13 days or whatever. And, so not like totally insane, like, but, but stuff that was out there and, you know, it's always that 1% and that 1% when you're on that side of the fence, it's just something that was never going to happen to me. You know? So now in 2002, you had another adventure. Where did that take you and your dad? That's the 1%. Yeah. So we went to, uh, he asked me if I wanted to go on this climb. There's a mountain called Pico de Orizaba, which is a large volcano right outside Mexico city. Okay. Usually really safe. Uh, it's about 19,000 feet. So a lot of folks go there for, for altitude uh, training and getting ready to go to Everest. I think it's the third highest mountain in all the Americas. Oh, wow. Usually there's a really good snowfall, and they have a kind of a layer on the, on the glacier 
and there's a glacier that goes from 14,000 up to 18,000. And the year we were there, it was like an ice skating ring. And, Let me uh, ask you real quick, because you just talked about this as a location mm-hmm. that they do uh, training. Did you guys have any previous training to doing this hike? Not me. Uh, so my father had just summited Rainier. He'd gotten into climbing. He'd done uh, the Tetons, some other things. But the answer is not really. Okay. Our, uh, someone in our group, uh, his name was Mike uh, O, and uh, he was a really well-known climber in the community. He had actually broken the north face of Everest. And so we thought we were in really good hands. Sure. And uh, the year we were there, there was just really bad conditions. And my father had altitude sickness. Okay. And about 200, 300 yards short of the summit. So the rest of our group had just gone over. I stayed back with him. He slipped and fell. And uh, as he came sliding by me, I dove and tried to grab his jacket and my rope. My uh, ice axe was roped to my hip. Mm -hmm. And there's a move in in mountain climbing called self-arrest where you get on top of your ice axe and you dig your spikes, your crampons and your shoes into the ice and self-arrest. And my hope was I could do that as he slid by. And as I did that, reached down, my um, ice axe hit a rope or uh, hit a rock and came right up here and knocked me out. And that was the last thing I remember. And this is hard to believe, but we uh, we fell 4,000 feet <gasps> before we came still just short of these cliffs. And um, wait a minute. So your dad just slid by you when you said that this actually hit you in the head. Well, I remember re- grabbing his jacket and then trying to get on my ice axe to try to stop us. And that's when. That was the last thing I remember okay. until until waking up. Oh my gosh! Somehow we got tangled and stopped just short of these cliffs. We were told in the week after us, thirteen others fell and they all perished. Oh wow! So somehow we were really fortunate. Um, I don't know what got tangled, but the rest of our group had come over the top and saw this stream of blood down the face of the glacier and got to us. And uh, that was where the journey began. They couldn't get a helicopter to us that night, and so we were forced to to spend the night. Everything that could go right went right for my dad. He didn't have any of the injuries I had. He had a, a compound fracture. I say any of the injuries. He had a compound fracture, and his, so his bone was sticking out of his leg. But everything that could go right kind of went right. His boot filled up with blood and froze, kept all the infection out. And uh, I started to get edema in the middle of the night, which makes you feel warm, they think. And I started taking off my gloves and my clothes. And so... And the temperatures are... Probably... Uh, Negative, yeah, somewhere negative. Okay, and you're um, taking off your gloves and everything that's supposed to be me. keeping you warm. Right, okay. and then a helicopter with 300 mile an hour winds that, that rescued us in the morning came to us. How were you feeling at that moment when you woke up and realized where you were? Honestly, it's nothing heroic. I was so out of it, and it's one of the reasons I, I, I feel guilty sometimes sharing this story and people look at it as... There was nothing heroic about it. It was a, it was, I mean, it was a gift from God of a wake up, to be honest, of what a unbelievable, beautiful life I had, and it took me a long time to realize that. But um, yeah, but you had to have fear. So this isn't about being heroic. This is about survival. And then you're you're there with your dad. And and remind me again how how young you were at the time. I was 22. Okay. I was 22. Not a lot of life experiences. Not a lot of any experiences or knowledge so you had to have something going on through your mind knowing what you saw and what you were experiencing and then you're somewhere where you already learned that this isn't safe yeah yeah well the the hardest thing is realizing you know it wasn't figuring out once when i i don't even we're, we're skipping a big part of the story here but so when you go through something like this it's so little to do with figuring out how to tie your shoes and button your shirt 
it's about falling in love with the person you see in the mirror. Mm. And that's the hardest thing to do when you have fingers. <laughs> it's oh. even harder when you have fingers, you know, without fingers. You know what I mean? It's a, uh, or did I say that incorrectly? You're looking <laughs> at me wrong. It's, I didn't I'm look saying it's it hard to love way. yourself without any insecurities. Yes. And, uh, you know, and it's so, and not really having one as a young, as a young man overnight, I became the most insecure kid in the world. And because of that, it gave me, I think this instant connection with people and want to love and empathy for people that are different. And we're all different. If you talk to someone long enough, right? Yeah, absolutely. We are and so, uh, I don't know. That's the glue that brings us all together. So I'm sure that there's parts of these stories that you would rather block out, have blocked out, or don't want to block out. Um, when you were, you and your dad were recovered from the summit, where did your journey begin there? Because you already indicated you lost your fingers, but I believe you also lost more than that. Right. So it took us a few days till they got us to Mexico City. Uh, we spent five days there, and everyone was worried about my brain more than anything. Uh, my head it was my head was the size of a basketball when they rescued me from all the swelling, if you believe that. And so I was blind throughout the night, which also made it difficult. But uh, frostbite, the first time I heard that was day five in Mexico, and, and they arranged for a jet to come get us and get us back to Scottsdale. And you can imagine there's lots of frostbite specialists here in Scottsdale, right? That, <laughs> that, was, that was a joke. Um, yeah, because it gets cold, really cold. Right? <laughs> and so we didn't, there wasn't a lot of options, and we quickly learned, you know, worldwide there's not a lot of options for frostbite. You amputate. Um, and that was a tough word for my mom to hear. And so for a month, that first month we were back here, my fingers were still on and my toes were still on, but they were black and almost looked like petrified wood. Mm. And I would go down to the burn unit and they would debreed my wounds. Um, and I'd do that two or three times a week. And those were really difficult times. I'd come back and, you know, it's a, a, and it, the second or third time I came back from that, I'll tell you a quick story. You walk in and John McCain was on our couch and we had a family connection who um, shared a cabin with the McCain's. And he had heard the story and came over, and it was a really powerful moment. He gave me the first sense of hope I had through this whole experience. You know, I had none. I came shuffling in the door with these big wraps around my hands. and and uh, But he looked at me, and he's just like, you know, the only difference between, uh, what do you say, adversity and opportunity is an attitude. Mm -hmm. But he was so candid and convicted with looking at me at the eyes and saying, this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever dealt with, and it, it might kill you. But if you get over it, you won't believe what's what's attainable. And uh, I don't know, it was just really powerful. But that was the first kind of lifting moment I had through the whole experience. And we're trying to figure out what to do, going back and forth to the burn unit. And the phone rang on Christmas Day. And as a doctor in Dallas, we ended up doing all our surgeries in Dallas. And that took two years. I had, I don't know, 15 to 20 surgeries. To try and keep your fingers? So they did what's called a pre-flap. They took my latissimus muscle and flap that over what's left of my fingers. And the idea there is, I'm not a doctor obviously, but uh, muscle can provide oxygen, vascularity to bones. And, and the idea was they might be able to save some of my bones, which they can. You can see they saved a little bit of fingers. This was actually out to here when I first had the surgery and as my back muscle atrophied, bones started to pop out. And so I would have to go back, gosh, every few weeks and they would shave this bone down and then sew it back up, which was a, horrendous experience so yeah it's painful stuff like, when it's you stuff say like horrendous? that that i yeah painful stuff like that that i totally forget um 
Yeah, I got out of the bathtub one time and my toe was floating. My girlfriend's crying, handing me my towel, I remember. And that's a story I don't think I've told. And, but there's so many things like that that I forget when I get in the nuts. I start thinking about it. And you ask if any of them were really tough. Um, you know, the hardest night was the last night with my fingers. Even though it was day 32 after the accident, they were black and charred. Uh, we were in Dallas. And the surgeon tells us the next day you're going to wake up and we're going to amputate your fingers here. We're going to take your back muscle, lap it over your hand. You're going to be in this hospital for a year. It was a lot to take in, you know, and uh, that last night we, I shared, they have a the hospital has a hotel above the hospital and my dad slept in the same bed with me and we, we spooned more or less. Um, and that was the hardest part for me because I knew how hard it was for him. And, and honestly, Christina, like that was the hardest thing. This whole experience was the pain I knew my dad went through because he loves me so much. And, and like, he knows I love him so much. And this was such a great thing that just went bad. You talked about looking in the mirror is the hardest thing that anybody, myself included, anybody that we have a hard time loving ourselves for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Now we've already established that, yes, we are different. But now you have something that sets you aside even more different physically yeah yeah um it changed everything it changed uh i keep feel like i keep telling stories but it's maybe the best way to tell some of this is it was my first business trip and i was going to grand rapids michigan and i was working for a mutual fund company so we i was walking into a a firm wide of uh, just investment advisors and i was going to talk about our investment funds and usually the night before those type of things you're thinking about your talk what you're going to talk about and i couldn't you know, I was just worried about what they were going to think about me. And I remember I showed up that first day so scared and I put my hand out and everyone shook my hand. And, um, but as we were sitting down, one of the, the lead guys looked down at my bio and he said, Matt, I saw you played baseball at Santa Clara. You know what, what position did you play? And of course I think like, he's asking me what the heck happened to my hands. And I said, well, tell him I was a knuckleball pitcher. <laughs> and it was just awkward silence in the room. And then finally, like, I started laughing and they knew I was, I was being facetious. But, um, but then the neatest thing happened, which I'm sure you can, you could probably predict this. We talked for two hours about, I shared a little bit about my story because of course they want to know. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, you know, he's sharing how he lost his wife to cancer the year before. And then, you know, and it just went on and on. And that was a tough day. It was tiring, but I learned that day that uh, I, I knew I needed to change a lot, but it was going to be great. It was going to be okay. We're always needing to change or something changes us, such as a situation. But the truth is, I can never escape this. And uh, it's part of my identity. It's part of who I am. And in a lot of my meetings, I, 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 where am I trying to get to? I want to figure out a way to incorporate this more into my life. And it's taken a while to get there. Um, some of that's just been healing and grieving still um, and confidence, you know. And once you get that God confidence, if you know what I'm talking about, that confidence that you, it, it's, uh, you're locked in on what you want. I just feel this burning desire to do something with this, whether it's being a service to people or um, something outside of my current industry. How many people come to you and ask you a lot of questions like, what happened to your hands? Every day. Um, yeah, I think like my talk that I give out, you asked me if I do some speaking, that's a big part of the, the major premise is that this idea that we all have scars and mm-hmm. uh, that's been the greatest, one of the, the nicest gifts of my hands is I get to hear those. You know, I think because because I'm vulnerable to someone, I think it makes them feel like they can be vulnerable with me 
and um, so it makes just for great connection, which is funny because they're so different than who I was before. I was such a, I was a guy, you know. I don't know. Now you value life a little bit more than yeah. you used to. Yeah. Well, yeah, I valued life before a lot. Trust me, but um, it's different. I totally understand that statement. Yeah. I, I've had, we won't get into it because this isn't about me, but I've had my own tragedy that I've always been a grateful individual. And when we just talked about, you know, laughing and things that, that go on in our life that make us go, I know I was grateful, but I'm probably more grateful than ever before. And you right. see life and you see things so differently than the average person yeah. or even someone who hasn't had anything happen to them. And I'm not going to say that everybody has something happen to them, but no one is, no one is free of anything not happening. Yeah, no, you give it enough time. We all have some kind of scars, right? We do. Inside we or do. outside. What are some struggles that you have had to deal with or overcome? Or still? So, addiction. I don't know if you knew that was part of my story. That's Mm-mm. that's really the story. Yeah, I remember Dr. Anigan told my folks, Matt's biggest thing is not going to be learning how to use his fingers. It's going to be, he's going to wake up from this and be a, a drug addict. Um. It, the Oxycontin that they put me on initially was, you know, I got away from that. And the, we didn't really sense a problem at that point. But when they gave me this drug called Tramadol, it was non-opiate. So at the time, it was non-controlled. It's supposed to not be addictive. And I would take it, and it just made me fly. And um, that's what I... And, and now, of course, it's a controlled substance. It's highly addictive. And uh, numerous... It's killed, uh, you know, a few celebrities. It's one of those drugs. Oh, wow. Um, and so I just really struggled with that part of that struggle. I found running and, um, maybe that was one of the reasons I was making an excuse to use these, these pills. You know, I don't have toes, uh, on my left foot. All my toes are, are missing on my right foot. I've got three toenails, my three smallest toes. Okay. Interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, anyhow, so, uh, maybe that was my excuse for taking these pain meds, but, I don't know how to, you don't realize what your reality is sometimes until you're just so deep into it. And that's really what happened. I think with these pain meds was I was, I was trying to survive each day, just survive. And what I mean by that was not physical pain, mental pain. I had, I had days that, and I don't, I think we, everyone will probably go through something. I don't think it's anything unusual or, or unique to me, but I went through some really tough times times that for my first 22 years, I didn't even know existed in this or feelings and minds, state of minds. And so I was trying to deal with all that. And these pain meds would make it all go away in a second. I didn't have to wait to go talk to a therapist or, you know, it was just instant gratification. And at some point that, that switch happened where it went from being useful for my feet and my toes to, I'm really doing this as a crutch to escape my life. To get from one day to the next. And so uh, over the next 10, 15 years, this problem, uh, I'll call it like a white, a white collar problem. No one, no one really, uh, if flew underneath the radar, it was so easy to walk in somewhere and, uh, show my hands and wear a suit and look good. And I could, you know, get pretty much anything I wanted. Not that that's an excuse. So you're manipulating the situation to get totally. what you want. I think that's an ad- absolutely. addictive, uh, profile. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I was, uh, absolutely. And I built my whole life around that. And what happened was it just delayed the healing. Oh, that was a powerful statement. Well, it does, you know, it's, you have something to, to comfort you and run from all the time. And, uh, it wasn't until I really got away from that, that I realized, you know, I lost my fingers forever. 
I went to back to business school at University of Texas. I did 15 to 20 marathons. But while I was doing this, this problem was getting worse. I was taking more pills. Um, now I had moved on to Adderall, which is like an amphetamine. Mm-hmm. So all these b- other bad habits come with those things. Um, bad practices, bad habits, if you will. And at some point it caught up to me. And I was living in Austin, working really my dream job. And got approached by my employer. So, you know, we got, Matt, we love you. We want you to go get help. And oh, they were wow. kind enough to to do that. So we said goodbye, which was really tough. It was, it was such a, it, it really was my, my, you know, I, two of my, a lot of my best friends worked there. It was a great place. It was tough to leave. And, uh, but it was a wake up call and I needed to. And so here it was 20 years after my accident almost. And I had never really fully dealt with this, but I, you know, I was 22 when it happened. You don't like take time out for life. And all my friends are getting jobs and moving on and starting families. And here I thought I had the whole world in my fingertips and, and, uh, you know, I can't just stop and not do anything. Uh, not that that was my excuse, but that's what I needed to get by at that time. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I would have gone back to school and done all the things I did if it weren't for the pain meds. Wow. So what was your turning point that day that you lost that job that was important to you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, part of it. Uh, I came back here and that's where the spiral began. I'll rather say that. I came What's back. the spiral? <laughs> I knew you'd ask that. <laughs> uh, Gotta get real so people understand. I came back here someone. I came back here and went to the Meadows for 30 days, which is a real high-end recovery place. And uh, it got me clean for 30 days, but that's about it. Oh, and wow. I came back and just started isolating and um, was smoking a lot of marijuana. That was my thing and isolating and hiding and uh, I was more or less an entrepreneur at the time, so that didn't help that aspect. And one thing, I, I was going to go till I had nothing left. It got to that point really quick after a year or two. My family lives down the street. You might be asking, like, I have this great family. What are they doing? They were uh, so supportive through it all, but I hid a lot of it. Did a really good job hiding it. But at the very end here, they got to the point where it was, I had to choose either the drugs or them. And that was the last straw. Um, I had an argument in my, my folks' house. I thought someone was chasing me. I thought people were chasing me. I hadn't slept for a few days, just to give you a little illustration how bad it was. And I pushed my dad in his house, in, in the chest, and told him to get the F out of my life. Wow. And he told me to get the F out of my house, and I don't want, and uh, I had n- never heard my dad use the F word. And um, here's this man that, like, I, you know, I. Respected, do- and here you disrespected him. Do- I, yeah, I love this man more than anything, and mm-hmm. he's telling me to get out of his life. And, uh, so that was a wake-up call, and fortunately for me, they uh, sent me to a place called Prescott House up in Prescott, and I spent a long time up there. Mm-hmm. And that's where I found, I guess, found God again, you could say, and some other things happened, but it was just a spiritual awakening. It was time. I needed time away from this world, and Prescott is a good good place to do that. And uh, what I mean by that is just, this is a fast world. You have your cell phone. Yes. It's just, it's so hard to escape that instant gratification, instant hit thing when it's all around you all day. And for me, I needed to get away from all that. And um, I'm not embarrassed by it at all. It was, I'm embarrassed by the things I did. I did some probably really embarrassing things through those years, but it made me who I am today. It's taught me things that I don't think you'll ever learn in a school and uh, just gives me an appreciation when you were in this facility before. in Prescott, you had to learn to forgive yourself, didn't you? It's 
it's hard for me because I, I was always so forgiving of, yeah, it's a tough one to answer. Let's, you know, forgiving myself, I think came with time. Um, but what preceded all that was this, I had to forgive, so forgive God in, in a way. I was really angry, you know, when this whole thing happened. And, uh, until I could get over that hurdle, obviously you can't get anywhere when you're, and that was really the, the first thing is, you know, when this happened, it was so angry. Um, and I think a lot of people say, why me? Yeah. It was just confusing, you know? And, uh, God, you did get me to tear up. Uh, yeah, I was, I was mad. And once I got over that initial, and it, which took 20 years and, uh, it wasn't that I was, you know, an anarchist or anti-Jesus and really not that at all. It was, uh, it's just this inner seed. I don't know how to explain it. Of just, uh, I felt like I got slighted. You get one chance at this and that happened, you know? And so once I got through that, uh, which happened up in Prescott, really, um, forgiving myself was easy. And how hard was it for you to go back to your parents after you just shared what you did, disrespecting, vice versa? How was that for you to go to them and? Yeah. Um, it was hard to go back to my parents more from just a, from a, 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 a shame standpoint. At the very end of that cycle, Christine was the first time I was doing drugs because I had shame. Mm. I was doing drugs to run from the shame I just created. And that was the most difficult part was just when you clean up and sober up, realizing the wreckage and the things you've done in your life to these people who love you so much. And I don't think I even had to ask my folks for forgiveness. They were so kind and loving. Um, maybe that's Miller's, the Miller's are, but they're, for, you know, they're trying to say f sorry to me, like they screwed up and, uh, which obviously they didn't. So, uh, forgiveness, I guess was easy to answer your question, Christine. It was easy in our household. It was hard for me with God. And that's where the whole thing lied. It always starts with us mm. and no one wants to be accountable because we always want to point the finger somewhere else. Yes. Or someone made us feel this way when we are in control of how we feel. Right. Yeah, ownership is a huge deal. It's like uh, recovery, you know, they say you're not responsible for your addiction, but you're responsible for your recovery. And um, I feel like the same way of what happened to me, you know, it's like, this has great responsibilities that come with it in, in a good way. Like I, I get to do stuff like this. You know, I never would have got a chance to do this maybe if, if this didn't happen to me. I get to go talk to schools. I, so there's a lot of, if you look at it that way, you know, there's a lot of responsibility that like the Lord's given you with this, if you want to view it that way. Now that I'm on, I'm on this side. So I haven't had a pain med since September 5th, 2018. So that's a good thing. Thank you. And, uh, yes. Good high five. And, um, where was I going with that? I do a lot of work in, in, you know, in the recovery homes now. And, uh, that's been a gift as well. You know, I, I think you found your calling right there where you said you can go to these places that have had addiction that talk about shame, trying to hide certain things. And you talk about the journey and the turning point and that you're the advocate for that. Absolutely. It's up to you. I think it's always up to us. It's ownership. Um, it's a part of that journey. I guess I keep leaving out stories. This, you'll like this though. I, I took a, uh, before going to rehab, I argued my folks into, not sending me to rehab and I was going to go to Europe and do this walk. <laughs> you were negotiating and it didn't work. Well, it did work. So I ended up doing the Camino de Santiago. Mm -hmm. If you're familiar with that, it's a, it's a 500 mile pilgrimage across Northern Spain and I ran it 
And so every night I, or every day I would do 13 or 15 miles and then you would stay at a little hostel every night and, um, incredible experience though. And just, an, it was my escape to get away here, but I was over there for 36 days, had gotten clean and the whole plan was to refocus and live my life like I wanted it, had the whole architecture set up and I got back and the first night I was high and, and that's when I went to Prescott house and, um, I don't know. I just, I share that cause like I'm an, edu- I'm an educated Achim. person. I'm not dumb. Uh, I don't think I am. And you know how many times the answer was to go right. And I wanted to go right with everything and I would go left. You know, it's just addiction's a crazy thing and it's so hard to explain. It's like having cancer and everyone hates you. Mm. You know what I mean? And, um, so yeah, that, that's my story. The addictive stuff is was way harder than anything on the mountain. Wow. Yeah. You have a love for running, but you said you don't have all your toes. That's correct. Um, so uh, 13 weeks after I had my toes amputated, which was my last surgery, I signed up for the, I was back here in Phoenix and I signed up for the Phoenix Rock and Roll. I'm aware of it. The half marathon, and I'd never run a half marathon, but... Um, I needed something to get me out. I was really, I'd been in the hospital more or less for the last two years. And uh, so I, I ended up doing the half marathon. It took me two and a half hours or something. And I've walked most of it, bled through my shoe. But I realized I felt something that made me feel like Matt of old. I felt alive and I felt like athletic. And it turned into, uh, turned into my church. It turned into too, my, my routine, you know, my morning routine, my time with God. And, uh, just recently, I signed up and, and ran the Leadville 100, which is a 100-mile race up in Leadville, Colorado. And so the hope was, you know, to do a 100-mile race, I, I shared all my other struggles with the pain meds, you know, all these different things. To do that, you have to live like an A life, you know. Your, your, your nutrition has to be on, your hydration, you sleep. You just have to do things right. And that's why I wanted to run the race. And, uh, leading, and it's a very hard race to get into, too, and et cetera. So I had this entry. I ended up going up there with, I didn't train for the last month. So the intent was I was going to pull out halfway and I did pull out halfway. So I did the first 50 miles. Um, and it was the most incredible experience. But the reason I share this is I didn't, I'm not shameful. I didn't finish very content with what I did. I think it was an incredible experience, but I'm going back this year to, uh, to check that box. Cause I don't think I did fully embrace and live that, that, whatever that is that leads up to Leadville that that needs you to prepare mentally and physically for that challenge and so that's on the docket for next year and I'll say you know I did lose toes but I think I lost so much more than I, I gained so much more than I lost sounds like it you know who Ed Milet is yeah what's his fa- what's he famous for saying just one more oh okay and you did just I one just see more. pictures of him on private airplanes all the time <laughs> but I I'm I follow him along with other individuals like that. But when you're talking about the, no, just one more, more. just one more, you're doing in a whole different way than he's probably thinking. He's telling everybody, you're like, no, I'm coming back (laughs) one more because I'm going to achieve this. Right. Yeah. That's exactly it. When you're out there, it's just one more. It is just one more, one more day, one more this, one more that. Yeah. On the upside, not the downside. And all the things that you just talked about as far as challenges and what got you to where you're at as far as running and the one more, what are you thinking about when you're running? <laughs> right? I never really thought about it until just now with all that you have gone through and you right. continue to conquer. What do you think what are you thinking? 
I think of all kinds of things, but I think what running does for you, it's, it puts you in flow. Okay. You know, just, we all have, we all need that one thing you were talking about earlier that when you get in the middle of it, time stands still, you could do it forever. It's not work. And, uh, I never thought I would say it, but that's running. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's what I think about. It depends. It's just, I think I think of everything, but I'm just present. And that's the key. People forget to be present. Like you just said a little while ago, we are electronic devices. Life yeah. is moving super fast and everything is pulling at you and you just got to take away from it and say, no, I'm not even in the present. I'm worrying about what's going to happen right? tomorrow when I haven't even finished what's happened today. One foot in yesterday and one in tomorrow, you're pissing on today. That's what my old P coach used to say. <laughs> The cliches, right? They have meaning once you've actually gotten there and go. That's what <laughs> that's they what meant. he meant, right? <laughs> yeah. What advice would you give someone who's dealing with something that just happened to them and they think there's no future, based on what you've been through? How would you in- encourage them or inspire them? Uh, how would I? Uh, for one, I would say pray. Mm-hmm. I would hunker down and pray. Um, I would then surround yourself with people who have who are like-minded people and possibly have been through something like you, but living in consultation is so important in those moments of tragedy when you're not thinking right and you need help from me. Um, and taking care of yourself. I guess that would be the third is just making time for no, you need to be number one at all times. Um, but especially in a moment like that, um, I guess those three things, these are tough questions you're throwing at me. These are these are deep. You know, the only way that anyone's going to be able to relate is if they heard someone had to struggle because there's things that people don't want to talk about for the reason of either uh, shame or they feel burdened. What did you gain out of this? Or what there, was there a lesson out of this experience? Oh, wow, so many. Um, was there a lesson? I, I think the biggest lesson is and one of the most important things I've learned is uh, there's nothing more important than your state of mind, your state of being, how you approach your day. For me, that's, uh, I think, really important. You know, just to get, it's really easy for me to have something that throws me off. I'm at the coffee shop and someone, you know, doesn't, scares, is scared of my hands and drops the coffee or I drop my card and can't pick it up. There's a lot of things like that that happen throughout. And if I'm not mentally in the right place, it's really easy to spiral and play the victim card and, and feel sorry for myself and uh, lose confidence, to be honest with you. Um, that's the beautiful thing about life is if you're malleable and have the right attitude, it's, it's just different things present itself as cliche as it sounds. Matt, thank you for being vulnerable. <laughs> this journey of yours that started out to be trying to figure out who you were at a young age put you somewhere else as an adult and I respect that a lot yes. because a lot of men won't sit there and talk about how they feel <laughs> and go through the challenges and express the yeah. challenges and you did that and that's the real part about yeah. stories of hope is because you just gave a bunch of hope to people that probably thought why me the why, possibility why of me why dad. not that's yeah. the answer to whoever's at home it's it's not why me it's why not and yeah, it's embrace whatever's been given to you. You did a full circle on hope, in my opinion. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Good to be anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah, right. We're going to do another high five on that one. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> thank you. This inspiring story was brought to you by MMG, your global creative agency based right here in downtown Chandler. 
Thank you.